The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to another bonus episode introducing the life and work of David Garrick. Garrick was an actor, a manager and an impresario and he probably did more than anyone else to make Shakespeare the cultural icon we consider him today. David Garrick was born in Hereford in early 1717 and was the third of seven children. He grew up in Lichfield, a small cathedral city north of Birmingham. Among his earliest roles was that of Sergeant Kite in George Farquhar's The Recruiting Officer, something about which he might have known a thing or two, since his own father actually was a recruiting officer, stationed in Gibraltar during much of Garrick's childhood. This first performance happened while Garrick was studying at Samuel Johnson's school near Lichfield. Garrick and Johnson became good friends, and they moved to London in 1737, hoping to make their way in the big city. One might have thought that Johnson would write and Garrick would act, but in fact Garrick first tried to make it as a wine merchant. The business never really took off, although it did lead to some good connections, and it just about tided him over until about 1740 when he wrote a play. It was called Leafy, or Aesop in the Shade, and it was a smash hit, performed at the Theatre Royal in Drury Lane, one of only two proper licensed theatres in London the other, of course, being Covent Garden around the corner. But what Garrick really wanted to do was act, and he tried his hand at one of the unlicensed theatres outside the city down in the East End, called Goodman's Fields. In 1741, somehow, he landed the part of Richard III, and he was an overnight sensation. Perhaps, and I don't say this lightly, not since Thespis stepped out of the dancing chorus in the mythological moment that gave birth to dialogue and Greek tragedy has any single performance or any single person had such an impact on theatrical history. Garrick's Richard III was the talk of the town and everyone was entranced by his revolutionary style of acting. Theatre acting had become very formal and stylized in the decades since the Restoration. It was all about posing and declaiming rather than anything even close to normal behaviour. Garrick comes along and changes everything, focusing instead on realistic acting, or at least something that was realistic for the time. He copied human behaviours and he borrowed from real life, and as his career developed, it was proclaimed that he had no rivals. In his first year after that momentous debut, Garrick played King Lear and Hamlet. Now bear in mind, he's still in his mid-twenties, and he revived the Richard III by royal command. While he's also notorious for having changed some plays, both his Romeo and Juliet and his King Lear were tweaked and given happy endings, he endeavoured to bring new life to the pieces he performed. In the early 1740s, he was a great student of physiology, and drawing on that, he even had a trick wig made for himself, so that in his performance of Hamlet, his each particular hair actually appeared to stand on end. He didn't quite change the ending of Hamlet, mind you, although he did allow Gertrude to exit rather than dying of poison. Garrick was also responsible for some significant reforms on the stage, even beyond the character of the acting that he championed. He insisted on rehearsals and brought in more interesting styles of scenic and costume design. He stopped letting audiences sit on the stage and stopped selling cheap tickets for audiences to come in halfway through a show. 
He changed the way the auditorium was lit so that the focus shifted significantly to the stage. Theatre historians might tell you that it was Wagner who first made audiences all face the same way and turned off the lights in his theatre in Bayreuth, but in fact David Garrick was trying for similar things almost a century before him. The great actor was as devoted to Shakespeare outside the theatre as he was on the stage. His own home in London had a small folly in the garden, dedicated as a temple to Shakespeare. One of Garrick's most famous achievements was to put Stratford-upon-Avon, Shakespeare's birthplace, on the map as a tourist destination. In 1769, a new town hall was constructed in Stratford and Garrick was prevailed upon to help with the celebrations. Admittedly, they were five years too late to be celebrating Shakespeare's 200th anniversary, but nevertheless, a plan was put together to create a Shakespeare Jubilee. This was to be the event of the year, with masquerades, horse races, fireworks, a parade, a ball, and at the centre of it all, Garrick's performance of a great ode to Shakespeare. Tickets were printed, and indeed some of them even still survive, and it must have felt like half of London descended on the little market town, hardly equipped to host something so ambitious and so grand. It might all have gone beautifully, had the weather not betrayed it. The heavens opened, and almost the whole thing was a washout. Garrick had paid for most of the affair himself, and might have lost a small fortune, but, ever the impresario, he restaged the highlights of the celebration at Drury Lane in the autumn, and made back something like four times his investment. The Jubilee was celebrated the weekend of Shakespeare's birthday, and it basically gave birth to the Shakespeare industry. Garrick himself was an absolute megastar by this point, and between the notoriety of the soaked Jubilee and his own personal fame, everybody now knew where Shakespeare was born and when his birthday was. Naturally, some people started to go visit. Garrick himself showed little interest in returning to Stratford, and in one of his letters, none too gently suggests that if the town wants to continue celebrating the Bard, it needs to clean up its act, since it was, as he put it, the most dirty, unseemly, ill-paved, wretched-looking place in all Britain. Eventually things were put in motion, and now, of course, Stratford is beautifully maintained and one of the most popular destinations in England. As for Garrick, he died in 1779. It said that only the king had more likenesses made of him at the time. There were something like 200 paintings of Garrick in existence. The print industry was taking off at the same time as Garrick's career, and he was a dab hand at managing his image. He was painted by some of the most famous artists of the day, including Hogarth, who constantly complained that Garrick's face was too expressive, too constantly in motion, and was therefore impossible to capture. Doubtless Garrick himself spread this story. Everyone knew who he was, and something like 50,000 people bought tickets to see him lying in state before his funeral procession to Westminster Abbey, where he is one of very few actors to have been buried in Poet's Corner. One of his goals, as he set out on a career as an actor, was to raise the status of the profession, to clean it up and have it be taken seriously. He can certainly be said to have achieved that. I'll sign off with the closing lines of his Ode to Shakespeare created for the big jubilee in 1769. We will his brows with laurel bind, who charms to virtue humankind. Raise the pile, the statue raise, sing immortal Shakespeare's praise. The song will cease, 
the stone decay, but his name and undiminished fame shall never, never pass away. <laughs>